I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We're going to look at the end of Mark chapter 4 and uh, the story of uh, Jesus crossing, crossing a sea and stilling a storm in, from Mark 4 verse 35. Um, if you have no Bible, you're welcome to go grab one. There's some on the table at the back there. And we're on page 1478 in the church Bibles. If you do not own a Bible, you're also welcome to keep it. It's our gift to you. Um, we would want you to take it home with you and uh, read and explore what's in there. Mark 4, verse 35, it says, On that day, when evening had come, he, this is Jesus, said to them, his disciples, Let us go across to the other side. Now, the Sea of Galilee in the north of Israel was something like five miles wide, and uh, they were crossing from a town on one side where Jesus had been preaching all day and ministering to people, and they're crossing in the late evening to the other side where he wants to continue his preaching ministry. It says, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep, excuse me, asleep. (laughs) It's the end of a long weekend, I told you this, come on, please. Authority, come on, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, Jesus, as I told you, is coming to the end of a long day. And one of the things that um, would strike you as odd about this is, well, why didn't they just pitch up in a local bed and breakfast for the night and, uh, and catch some sleep? I mean, he, he undoubtedly was exhausted. And one of the clues you get from earlier in the Gospel of Mark is that uh, when the disciples want him to capitalize on a moment when he's getting a popular, a popular uh, appeal in a certain area, he says, no, 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 we've got to move on. I've got other towns to go and preach at. And there seems to be something of an urgency in the way Jesus is going about his mission and ministry. And uh, it, no doubt because he knows he has limited time in which to accomplish it. The whole of Jesus' ministry was lived under the knowledge and awareness that he was fit going to the cross one day. He was going to give his life. And he knew that he had a mission to accomplish in the intervening years to to speak about the kingdom, to warn and invite and to make it known that he had come. As we were looking at last week, he was announcing himself. And even that point alone just speaks to us, doesn't it? As those of you who are Christian, friends, there is an urgency about the work that we're involved in. Christ did not want to waste a moment in this. And there he is, in the middle of the night, they're crossing the sea. Now, a storm arises on this sea. And uh, I've been to the sea in calm times, but apparently because of the geographical um, features of the hills that surround um, this sea or this great lake, there, is, there are these sort of flash storms that just arise out of nowhere as wind is funneled down through the, the hills that surround the sea. And it whips it up into massive storms that are... Very frightening, and especially so when you understand that the boats that these guys were in 
were very shallow. And uh, you take on water. There isn't a pump on that thing to pump the water out. They're in, they're in danger. I don't know if you've ever been sailing. I had, I've had one experience, which I trust will never be repeated, um, where we were, uh, there's a group of about 12 of us were crossing from the Isle of Wight in the south over to the north coast of France. And um, the idea is it takes you, you know, I don't think, five or six hours or something like that to get across in a good wind. And uh, we, we were crossing, and it got choppy. It got, the waves got, got pretty uh, consistently um, large, and uh, the skies grew gray. It was nothing like a storm, but it was enough that within an hour or, or two hours into this trip, all of us uh, began to feel pretty queasy. And once the first guy had thrown up off the back of the boat, um, it was just, it was like all hell just broke loose. And the rest of us were just, you know, leaning over the thing and just everything was just gushing out. And you don't feel any better. When you feel seasick, you want to die. It is is that bad. I mean, I've never felt worse in my life. And I've suffered with migraines and all sorts. And it was, it is a horrific feeling. And uh, so anyway, we, there was a one guy who's on the trip who's an experienced sailor. And there he was in his, his, his nice posh sailing jacket, looking like he was the business. And, uh, but he also was feeling worse for wear. And you know how the boat leans over with the wind when the sail, on a sailing boat? He was sat on the upper ledge trying to keep his eyes on the horizon. And I was at the back of the boat with a few friends as we were trying to steer this thing. And he's just ahead of us and we're watching him. And you know, we're, we're trying to figure out what's this guy going to do. And without even attempting to lean forward, he just opened his mouth and projectile. Now, of course, he thought the thing was going to go that way, but the wind carried it that way to his side and sprayed us, and, uh, which, which didn't make us feel any better. Now, why am I telling you this story? It actually has nothing to do with that. Uh, I just thought it was fun. That was all. So... Um, these men are, are caught in a storm, which is not what I was in. So uh, it has no relevance whatsoever. <laughs> now, obviously, the situation on the Sea of Galilee was much, 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 much worse. And life-threatening. I mean, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever been in a life-threatening situation, but the adrenaline pumps and your mind goes dizzy, and these guys are in a sheer panic. And the question is, well, what are we meant to see here? When we read a passage like this, what is it that God wants to say to us through a passage like this? And one of the things you notice about the work of Christ in the Gospels, and particularly the miracle events that take place, is that they don't just have a literal meaning, though that is obviously important. But they also have a figurative meaning. And this is obvious when you read the stories, for example, of Jesus healing blind men. He often uh, pairs up the significance of the miracle with a spiritual lesson on the reality of Christ being able to open up blind eyes to see who he is to perceive God's glories and his, his revelation. Or when he heals a leper earlier on in the book of Mark, it speaks vividly of Christ's desire to cleanse us because leprosy was viewed as a, 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 it was an exclusion, excluding disease that would put people out of the community. And Christ is bringing in the lepers, like me and you, into his family. And so when we read a story like this one about Jesus stilling a storm, we are absolutely uh, meant to read and understand within that a figurative sense of um, the reality of storms that hit us in life. And I want to show you a few great truths that come out of this little story about God's ways and his dealings with us in such circumstances. And here's the first one I want us to think about. It's the reality that storms, when storms hit you in life, they reveal what the calm seasons of life cannot reveal. And I mean particularly about your spiritual condition. Prosperity 
calm, the experience of blessing and of peace and of everything going well has its own dangers. It can lead you to lethargy. It can lead you to prayerlessness. That's certainly my experience that when, I, when things are going well in life, I'm less likely to pray to my shame. But it's true that it has its own dangers when things are going well. But one of the things that, uh, that I think that the Bible teaches us is that when God allows storms to hit our lives, and I'm talking about uh, crises, I'm talking about acute suffering, I'm talking about danger, I'm talking about opposition from other people, situations that make you feel uncomfortable, threatened, and afraid, that part of the reason why these situations are allowed or purposed by God is that they reveal what's latent or what's hidden within you or what's, what's really true about the reality of your spiritual condition that you may not otherwise have, have realized. And in that sense, I think storms have immense value, as we'll see even in this story. And one of the things, the great things they do is they remove self-delusion. Many of us live under a delusion about our, our spiritual health. And you don't really know what's true about your spiritual health until you hit difficult times. And then the self-delusion evaporates. You think about how that's also true with physical health. When, you, when you're faced with a trial physically, you discover whether you're physically healthy. I know, um, just to give you a little example of this, um, when, I was, when I was a kid, I was pretty quick. And going, uh, running, I mean, went, uh, nothing else. I'm slow at absolutely everything else. My <laughs> wife will tell you, washing up, doing whatever, I'm just absolutely slow. But running, I was quick at. And going into my 20s, I, was, I had a svelte physique. Uh, you can't believe it now, but I, I was a quick guy. And, uh, but now I'm, you know, I'm in my mid, mid-30s. And uh, last year, we had the experience of taking, uh, going to my son's first sports day at his primary school. And uh, I, I was excited about this, and I'll tell you why. Because the greatest events of primary school sports days are the, is the dad's race, isn't it? That's, that's the moment everybody's waiting for on sports day. And um, we, we kind of you know, walked around the field, watched Seth engage in his various sports, watched the kids just running all over the place, trying to find the finishing line and running in circles. And we were like, oh, whatever. When the, when the dad's race came, I was focused. I dressed appropriately for the occasion. I was wearing my trainers. I was wearing shorts. In fact, it was pretty much the only reason I turned up. And, um, and so I, they called the dads over, and a bunch of us dads lined up. And this was it. This is the moment I'd been waiting for, for longer than you'd believe, actually. And... Uh, I stood at the line, and I immediately, um, I immediately realized I was in trouble for, for a couple of reasons. One was because the shorts were far too tight. I was wearing denim shorts, and I knew that things weren't going to go well. And secondly, looking down the line, I could see there was a vast difference in ages. Some of the guys were older than me. Some of the guys were like 15 years younger than me. And I was like, there's no way these are dads. There's something is going wrong here. Anyway, they said, the whistle went, we started running, and within five steps, I realized I'd lost this thing because it just took so long to get those legs moving. It's like, you know, like one of those old steam trains where it's just like chug, 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 chug. And it was, it, that's what it felt like. And by the time I'd reached full speed, the race was actually finished. And I had to then face the problem of slowing down once I parked the finishing line because there were children just beyond the line. It was all completely smashing the delusions that I had about myself. In an instant, 
Or take Jeremy, for example. A few weeks ago, we had our weekend away, and Jeremy played a game of football. And ever since then, he's been complaining of rib pain. I mean, <laughs> how do you get rib pain from a game of football is beyond me. But um, the, the reality is that sometimes you, you end up in a circumstance which removes the delusions that you had about yourself. And the serious point here is that when, when you find yourself threatened, when you find yourself in the circumstances and situations you don't want to be in, the realities of your spiritual health are exposed. The fault lines are exposed. The weaknesses are exposed. And you learn things about yourself that you otherwise wouldn't have known. You put in a stressful situation. You discover that you're prone to anxiety in a way that you didn't know about yourself. You experience a breakup and you realize just how much you are idolizing the idea of love or idolizing the person that you love. Or you, um, you find yourself in a, in, in a stressful situation. Uh, circumstance, and you discover that your prayer life to that moment has just been perfunctory and rote, and there isn't really the depth or the richness of prayer on which to draw to sustain you through um, a difficult trial. And suddenly, being thrown into the depths of a storm, you learn something. And one of the most terrifying things you might learn, by the way, is to discover, for some, you discover that you were never a Christian in the first place. And that's sobering. Jesus talked about this at the end of uh, his, his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, where he paints a picture of two men building a house. And he says, one of them built on, like, when, you, when he says, when you obey my word, it's like a man building his house upon stone. And the storm comes and the thing remains robust and firm. He says, another one builds a house, but he builds it on sand. And when the storm comes, he says, great was the fall of that house. And really, you don't know your spiritual condition until the storm lashes you. And for some, that's when you discover that whatever faith you thought you had was actually not real in the first place. It's one of the things that explains why some people, when they hit difficult moments in life, they exit church. They exit their faith. They turn their back on these things because whatever faith they had wasn't real to begin with. And this is worth dwelling on. And I think what it does... And to turn that to a positive point, of course, is that God also wants it and wills that we experience storms in various moments in life for the, for the purpose of exposing the realities of, and beauties of the faith that you may possess. In, in the book of 1 Peter, he talks about this. He says that now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness... I love that phrase, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying to these suffering Christians, God is allowing you to experience what you're going through so that your, your metal can be tested and proved to be robust, real, authentic, precious, and then bring glory back to the God who made you. Storms reveal, therefore, what, what the calm seasons in life cannot. And we see this evidently in this passage, in this story, in the two contrasting examples. You have, on the one hand, the example of Christ himself, who, of course, exemplifies perfect faith. And what's he doing? He's asleep. I think it's asleep it's a, it's a childlike kind of sleep, isn't it? 
whether you're going through stressful times as a family, um, young children are often completely oblivious to what's going on. And their sleep is totally unaffected. I'm not saying that Jesus is childish, but I'm saying he's childlike in his trust in the Father in those moments. There's a, there's a psalm, uh, one of the early psalms, Psalm 3, that talks about a particular storm that David was going through. It says, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. And then he goes on a little later and says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Sleep is often the first thing that's hurt, isn't it, by the way, when we're facing crises. Jesus is asleep. He's totally at peace within the Father's sovereign will. He knows it's not his time. He's not going to drown. They're not going to die. He can just, he can relax. The disciples, on the other hand, are in a, they're in a blind panic. And uh, they show us a more reasonable response to a crisis, don't they? The kind of response you and I would, would give. And what it does, the, the point I'm trying to help you to see, of course, is that the storm exposes the truth about these men. And what it, what it shows you is that the men didn't really know Jesus. They thought they knew him. But they have a very partial knowledge of Jesus. And this is evident in the dialogue he has with them. And in their reaction to him stilling the storm. They're like, who is this guy? Had they understood who he was prior to that moment, they wouldn't have been panicking the way they were. But their blind panic in the face of the storm shows you that they didn't really have an accurate knowledge of Jesus or the right kind of faith and trust in him as the one who would pull them through. And uh, that may be true of you also. Christ may allow you to experience the lashings of the storm to find out the tested genuineness of your faith, whether you really know him. And if you do, you will come through. If you do not, you'll learn something valid and important about yourself. Storms reveal what calm does not. Here's a second great truth which comes out of this story. It's that fear and faith are two sides of the same coin. The question is, how will you discover? What, what would be the great evidence in your life that the faith you have is not a robust or even a real faith or that your faith needs to grow, your trust in the Lord that needs to grow? And I think the answer, the diagnostic that points to a, an insufficient measure of faith is the reality of fear, when fear arises in your life. Fear, fear preaches that God is not in control, or that he's not good, or that he doesn't care, or that he won't help. And Jesus obviously calls out this relationship between fear and faith when he, just after he stilled the storm, um, he He asked the the disciples these questions in verse 40. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And the point is that fear and faith are intimately bound together in that they are two opposing realities. As faith grows in your life, fear diminishes. And as fear grows in your life, what it points to is that you don't have the kind of trust in God, in his sovereignty, in his love, in his kindness, in his purpose, in his great sovereign will that maybe you thought you had. And so fear is a, is a diagnostic, essentially. And it, it shows itself in different ways. 
It shows itself in acute ways when you experience panic that arises out of nowhere. When you experience anxiety that just bubbles up and, and, um, and, and, and results in or outbursts, like angry outbursts or emotional outbursts or the breaking down of your, your emotional state or hyperactivity. Some people express their fear through a panic desire to control everything around them. It can come up in these acute ways that just arise out of nowhere. Sometimes it's more a chronic thing. Some people live with the reality of fear as a daily experience and without even necessarily realizing what it is. It comes out as stress, as poor health that's suffering chronically because you're living with fear, as ulcers, for example. It's expressed as chronic sleeplessness, when night after night you cannot sleep because your mind won't stop turning over situations possibilities. Fear. Now, I want to to tell you a hard truth here about this. And it's this, that when you begin to recognize the problem of fear in your life, and I think this is what Jesus is calling out when he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You have to understand that there is a sin element there that needs to be understood about what's going on in your heart. I say that because consider how faith is so important to to God. The trust and faith of God's people toward him is is something which brings him glory, which reflects well on his character, on his faithfulness on his trustworthiness. God wants faith and he delights in faith when he sees it. And when you see this in a person who is going through crazy circumstances, I've known mature believers around me who faced the most difficult kinds of things. When they express and walk by faith in a God who loves them, it's an incredible thing to behold and it preaches about the goodness of the God they serve. God loves faith. You think about, think about this in various circumstances. Like, for example, let's say, you, let's say you, you, you're discussing a project or a problem with your colleagues. And uh, you volunteer. You say, I know how to solve this. Leave it to me. Now, how your boss might react in that moment either reflects well on you or poorly on you. If he says, great, fantastic, let's move on. Problem solved. Expressing trust in you. That reflects wonderfully on you as a worker, doesn't it? But if he kind of ums and ahs and frowns and second guesses and says, what, well, what about this? And can we involve others? And all those kinds of things. You might feel undermined. You feel distrusted and it reflects poorly on you. It may be because of past experiences or whatever. But the lack of faith is dishonoring to you, isn't it? In that moment. You feel it. You feel wounded. Or imagine... Um, my lovely wife invites you around for dinner sometime and uh, says, come and try some of my cooking. And uh, I'm just stood behind her and I say, absolutely great. This is fantastic. Yeah, come round. That reflects well on my wife, doesn't it? If I'm in the background going, don't do it. <laughs> say no, say no. It reflects poorly on her. Of course, so what I'm trying to help you to see, of course, is that faith, faith is a wonderful thing that God delights in because it it. It brings glory to him. He's a faithful God, and his people 
should express faith in order to preach about his goodness. That's why it says in Hebrews 11, without faith it's impossible to please him. This is the thing he wants from us, perhaps above all things. Fear, on the other hand, obviously, is the very reverse of that. It's a sign of our fallenness. It's a sign of our unbelief. It's a sign of our distrust of God, even though he's faithful. The preachers that he's not there, or that he doesn't care, or that he's not in control, or that he doesn't have a plan. A famous example of this in the Bible is when the spies return from Canaan to bring a report back to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness about whether they think they can enter into and conquer the land. And when they come back with a negative report and say it's not, it can't be done, the people of God are infected with fear. Specifically says that in, uh, in, in Numbers 14, how they were afraid. And then God asks this question to Moses. He says, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Now, you may feel when you're going through difficult circumstances that because of your status as a victim in that situation, that for me to then turn around to you and say, oh yeah, and by the way, you're also sinning by sitting in your fear. It might sound a little bit harsh, but I'm absolutely of the conviction that when we can see and perceive the reality that there's sin at work in our lives, that is a hopeful scenario because sin can be dealt with. If it's just your, your wiring, your personality, you're just given to panic or anxiety or stress, then there's really no hope for you because you can't change who you are. But if there's sin at the root, sin can be repented of, can be forgiven, the Holy Spirit can come in and change you, change the way you react. And that is immensely hopeful. Especially if you're the person who chronically suffers in this way, you do not have to remain like that. The bottom line is that God, God wants above all that his people trust him. Hasn't he shown himself trustworthy? Didn't he show this above all in the gift of his son, Jesus, on the cross to us? Hasn't he shown that his heart for us is good? That his purposes are good? That his ends are good? That whatever you're going through, he will work toward his good ends. And therefore, fear is an inappropriate response. That's what Jesus is calling out among these men. What kind of faith does he want us to grow in? What kind of faith does the Father want us to exhibit? And this brings us to the third great truth. That it is specifically faith in Christ that preserves us through storms. People will offer you all kinds of alternative solutions to the anxious and stressful situations of life. For some, they, they resort to denial and escapism. And I think this explains a lot of the behavior we see in the world around us and in our own lives. How when we're facing difficult circumstances, we just want to get away from things. We want to, we want to turn on Netflix or some people resort to substances or to um, hedonism or whatever it is. We want to run to these things in order to escape the great hairy monster of the thing which is stressing us out. Some people do that as a way of coping with things. Other people, you know exhibit stoicism, that kind of stiff back and that British have a cup of tea 
and, uh, you know, what is it? Keep calm and carry on attitude, which is just stoicism in, in, in the modern day. And this isn't, this isn't the Christian response. The Christian response feels what we're going through, fully feels it. But also through that experience of, of emotions and all the contrasting emotions, chooses to exercise faith. And not just faith in a blind, vague, I believe that everything works out in the universe type of way. It's faith in the person of Jesus Christ that preserves you through storms. And I think he's uniquely fitted to bring comfort to you. And I'll tell you why. One of the things that you see about him come through in this story is how, I think one of the things Mark wants to, to help you to see is the reality both of his humanity and of his divinity. On the one hand, you see him in his humanness. At the end of a long day, crashing in the bottom of this boat and having a sleep when everyone else is just running around frightened. And part of that is faith in God. Part of that is just tiredness. And that's a huge thing that Christians need to grasp. Its implications are endless for us. One of the things that Hebrews 2 says about the humanity of Jesus is this. It says that it was fitting that he, this is God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, in other words, in his desire to save people, should make the founder, this is Jesus, of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, the one thing which the Christian faith can boast about, which is not true of any other faith, is that our God took on flesh, suffered with us in his humanity, that he might understand and empathize with us through the suffering that you're going through. That seems to me uniquely comforting. And an important word to some of you to know that God is not distant, that he's entered in. But at the same time, we also see Jesus' divinity shining out through this, this account. Because what happens? It says that the disciples come and wake him. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke. And what did he do? Rebuked. Just spoke to the wind and the sea and said to the sea, peace, be still. Peace. Love it. There's partly just the reality of the miracle which preaches that he's divine. But it's also... It's the fact that he speaks and creation obeys him. That's a signature of Yahweh. That's how God creates the world. That's how he governs the world. It just reminded me of that moment, you know, in the Superman films when uh, Clark Kent's wearing his his shirt and he he pulls it open. I I won't do it now, but he he yanks it open. And as he does, the, the S is revealed on his chest. And... That's, that's what you're seeing here when Jesus speaks and creation obeys him. It's a signature move of Yahweh. It's like the shirt ripping open. And for a second, they glimpse him in his reality. And of course, you see what happens to them. It says in verse 41 that they were filled with great fear. Now, these guys were already afraid. <laughs> 
different word, apparently, in the Greek. It's, they were afraid, but now they've got great fear. Because a minute ago, they just want the boat to be dry. Now they want to get out of the boat. They're like, who is this guy? <laughs> uh, you know, the, the wind and the sea obey him. But friends, this is, this is wonderful truth. A Christian knows these two truths simultaneously in their experience of relating to Jesus through the storm. They know that he's close to us because he, he sympathizes with us. He knows that the fact that you're experiencing anxiety is because you're tempted to unbelief, and he gets it. He's not condemning you. He's moving near to you. He loves you. He understands the pain of suffering. But at the same time, we know him as the Lord over the universe who is in control of your circumstances and whose authority governs the situation that you are in. And we trust him. And I don't think you can just have one or the other of these truths. If all you know of Jesus is him and his humanity, and he's your chum, He's a useless chum, isn't he? He's just like one of the other disciples. But if all you know of Jesus is him and his divinity, a distant, powerful savior, you don't feel his intimacy and his closeness and his compassion and concern for you. But a Christian knows both of those realities. These men discovered both of those realities on that day. I'm sure it changed their lives. They still have moments where they panic, as we learn later in the Gospels, but it changed their lives, didn't it? And friends, this is, this is exactly why the gospel is so powerful. In this we have a, a small cameo, a little picture of exactly the reason Christ is the perfect savior for us in the storm. Because friends, in a sense, all of life is a storm. And one day we'll face a greater storm yet to come, which is a storm of God's own judgment. We'll face him. And yet we know. In the boat, panicking, bailing out water, desperately hoping that we'll survive. We know that Christ has stepped into this world, in his humanity, into our circumstances and into the boat. Not just in order to sympathize and have compassion with us, but to triumph over the storms. And particularly to triumph over the storm of death and of sin and of estrangement from the Father. In order to bring us safely to a harbor in which we are safe for eternity. I want to ask you as I close, do you need such a savior? Because there's basically two kinds of people, aren't there, in this room. Some of you are not Christians. How are you going to face the difficult situations of life as they come? Have you ever given that thought? Will you bury your head? Will you grit your teeth? Will you try and control it? Friends, there will always be a storm that's going to overwhelm you. At some point, there will be. And if not, even in this life, as I said, there will be when you face God. And Christ wants to be a friend to you rather than an enemy. And my invitation is you can trust in him. You can call out to him. It may be a desperate call, just like these disciples. You can call out to him in whatever way seems appropriate, but there's an invitation there to you to trust in Jesus. He wants to save you. He wants to be a friend to you. He wants to comfort you. He wants to bring peace to you in the midst of your circumstances. Many of us, most of us, are Christians. And it may be the case that as you're 
as you're meditating on the situation of these disciples, you recognize that your circumstances right now resemble a storm. And you may have been reacting badly. Fear, panic, anger, questioning in a way that's unhelpful. And Christ, Christ is here. He knows exactly what you're facing. He loves you. And he wants to minister his peace to you. I can't promise that your circumstances will change. But what we can do is call out on him together to come and be with us in the boat, can't we? Or to recognize that he's already there. That he knows what's happening. And that he loves us.